Hi everyone, Jamie Hampton here, introducing the 85th episode of Greater Than Code, which is a, a special book club episode, which are my favorites. And I'd also like to introduce my friend, Astrid County. Thank you, Jamie. I'm here with my friend, John Sawyers. Hi there, I'm here with our guest, Sarah Wachter Betcher. She is the principal of Rear Union, a digital product and content strategy consultancy, and the co-host of the podcast, Know You Go. Her recent book, Technically Wrong, The Sexist Apps, Biased Algorithms, and Other Threats of Toxic Tech, was named one of the best tech books of the year by Wired, and it's the book we're here to discuss. So welcome to the show, Sarah. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm really excited. I think even though it's a book club episode, we should start off with our like signature question, which is, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? You know, it's funny because I thought a lot about this signature question when you let me know that it was something you always asked. And it's so not the way that I think about myself. It was a little bit brain breaking for me to have to come up with what I thought my superpower was because it's like when somebody asks me my favorite food or my favorite color, it always stumps me. And I think that that's because I'm so interested in so many different things. And so what I decided is that my superpower is maybe being able to jump into lots of different types of topics and make at least some sense of them and be able to communicate them for people who aren't necessarily on the inside. So I like to think that I have a lot of skill in communicating with different types of people and breaking down things that are often really opaque or can seem overcomplicated in ways that make them relatable and compelling. So hopefully that's my superpower. I think it's something I'm pretty good at. That's awesome. That is an awesome superpower. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. That's like a podcast superpower, I feel. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I started uh, hosting a podcast just this year, a few months ago, and I'm hoping that it's something that I can do well. But as you know, running a podcast is pretty hard. I think it's rewarding, though. I really like doing it. For sure. I think that skill also works well for your day job, which involves going into a lot of different contexts and trying to synthesize what needs to be done and then communicate that out within the company and, and outside of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my day job is really consulting with organizations who have complex needs when it comes to their content or who are struggling to figure out how their like product strategy needs to evolve. And so much of that actually, I realized a long time ago, comes back to people issues in organizations and a lack of sort of internal alignment on what we're doing and why we're doing it. Or, you know, this problem, and I think this relates to what we're going to talk about in the book, but this problem where there's a lot of talk at one level about our values or our vision, and then there's not a lot of follow through in terms of like how that's actually going to happen. And so being able to connect dots and being able to show people sort of like, that the steps that they need to actually take in order to live out the thing that they say is important is something that I feel like I've spent a lot of time trying to get good at and, and definitely is something I value a lot. So I was wondering if you think that this superpower helped you like in the process of writing the book, like separate even from the content, which I know we are going to get into in a minute, but like just the process of like writing and editing and communicating things about the book to people while you were doing it. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I think that one of the things I've found over the past several years as I've written, you know, a couple different types of books is that I like to be able to sort of like envision 
the audience that I'm trying to talk with and some sense of like what they know and don't know and organize at sort of a very macro level, organize the the story that I'm going to tell them in such a way that it helps bring them along and that it connects with the things that they might care about. And so, you know, whether that's purely writing for more of a peer audience of other people who work in design or tech or writing for a wider audience, trying to think through, you know, I mean, it's kind of like when we talk about user-centered design, it's kind of the same idea, right? Like being more audience-focused and really thinking about what is the understanding they might be bringing to this? What kinds of questions do I think they have? And what kinds of pain points or challenges do they have that this book would theoretically help them with? And then being able to organize the way I'm going to tell that story to serve that. I think one of the things that was particularly different for me in in working on this book was that when W.W. Norton, the publisher, approached me about it, what they really wanted to do was turn this into something that would be interesting to a general audience and not only an audience that works within the industry. So that was something I hadn't done before. And I spent a lot of time thinking about how that might be different and what I needed to stop and explain while also thinking about the fact that people in tech would likely end up reading it. And can I make sure that it doesn't read in such a way that those folks don't feel like they're learning anything from it? And so that was sort of my aim as I was going through the writing process. And I definitely think that the skills that I've built over the years in breaking down complex things and being able to speak at different levels and being able to keep things conversational, I think those were all really valuable and helpful. That totally makes sense. I found the book really fascinating and like really, really readable. Like I flew through it because it was engaging, but it was also very readable. And I liked that about it. Can we have a summary for those of us who haven't had a chance to finish the book? Technically Wrong is really about the myriad ways that we have ended up building products in the tech and design industry that can alienate people, can leave them out, exclude them, and can cause you know pretty grave harm. So we talk about all kinds of biases that get embedded in tech products, and we kind of look at how did we end up with a tech industry that operates in a way that you know, can be so harmful? And, you know, it's really interesting working on the book over, you know, a lot of 2016, early 2017, there was a lot of stuff that was kind of starting to be in the air about the tech industry. But all of a sudden, it feels like in the past six months or so after the book came out, it's like example after example after example of tech's oversteps are sort of like hitting the mainstream. And in a way, you know, I almost feel like vindicated, like, see, see, these problems are so real and they're so big. Yeah, we're certainly not hurting for examples of of any of the things you discuss in the book. Speaking of not hurting for examples, I thought that there was an interesting at the very beginning point about how it's easy to find stories about people being mistreated because you don't have to really like look for them. They just kind of come to you, especially as like a woman in the industry. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to say because the two stories that were talked about right before were about Amelie Lamont and then about Erica Joy. And both of those stories I already knew because I'm friends with Amelie and I follow Erica on Twitter. So I can verify that they do just come to you. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, there's lots and lots of stories that I didn't mention that come to me because they're private, right? Because I, I hear from all kinds of people, most mostly women who are working in tech, who've had just really atrocious experiences in their companies and in interview processes. And I mean, the thing that I really want to hit at is that it's not just about, you know, what's happening to people who are working in tech or what's happening to people, you know, who are like the employees of these companies, but that the culture that creates those kinds of problems is also the same culture that doesn't listen to pushback when they're doing things that might be unethical and that builds bias into products without thinking about it or caring about it. Like those things really go hand in hand. Yeah, the, the culture is what produces all of these effects rather than them coming in from any sort of independent sources. So Sarah, earlier you talked about how in your job you have, you do a lot of connecting the dots and it seems like that's the problem within our own industry because it's not new, this, this concept of, there are people who are being mistreated or there are things that are being done that are harmful. But it does seem like it's always a surprise. It's brought up always as like, we didn't know this was happening. Do you have any insights to why this keeps occurring? Well, you know, I'd even make it bigger than that and say, I don't think it's just a problem in our industry. I think that that's like a wider cultural problem where it's hard for people to see systems that are often invisible. And so, for example, you know, when we talk about racism, what people want to imagine is an individual racist act, right? Like somebody made a racist comment, that's racism. And it's much harder to get people to talk about, okay, well, no, I mean, yes, but also what are the systems and structures that uphold racism, right? And like, so what are the ways in which the policies that we have, what are the ways in which the the history of our country, et cetera, make racism sort of built into this superstructure. That's much harder to talk about. It is more complicated and nuanced. It is more difficult to see. And so I think that that is true across the board. That is not a problem that tech created or something that is limited to people in our industry. Um, But I think it's definitely exacerbated in our industry. And I think the reason it's exacerbated is that tech has been seen as such a like shiny exciting industry and it's all about innovation and disruption. And I think when you focus people on that side of things, what it does is it obscures everything behind the curtain. And the result is that you have a tech industry that is sort of like built itself on a culture of mystification. Like you don't have to worry about how it works. It works in a way that's like indistinguishable from magic. And so when people think about the industry as being magical, then it's like, even harder to see the systems that are at play. And I think that that has been done somewhat by design. I think that like the less people understand, the less criticism the industry gets and that allows worse behaviors and more abusive behaviors to continue. Yeah. It's like people were talking about Facebook data sharing before the Cambridge Analytica news broke, but it provided such a vivid example that people I think were able to understand a little bit more concretely than the, sort of much more vague rumblings that didn't have quite so much news appeal that had gone on before that suddenly sort of brought that issue to everyone's mind rather than just, you know, some people are saying, you know, don't go on Facebook. Yeah. You know, I actually asked some folks, asked a lot of different people who did not work in tech about their experience with products like Facebook before when I was working on the book. And what most people would say was something along the lines of creepy, like that was about 
where the story was. Like, mm, sometimes they do things that seem creepy to me and I don't like it, but it's so ingrained in the way my family communicates. It's so ingrained in the way my friends communicate. It's so ingrained in the way that I run my small business or whatever that like, I can't really imagine divesting from it. And so one of the things that I was really hoping to be able to do was to help people gain a little bit more context in a, in a way that's not so overwhelming so that they could get beyond the kind of general sense of creepiness and get a better sense of what are some of the harms and what are some of the risks that are at play here. Yeah, I think that's a great leap to help people make because just from being generally uneasy with how something is going on to actually understanding the specific harms that are happening, the specific impacts that are happening, makes it much more understandable and actionable uh, from that context, yeah. So for doing the research to write this book, for a non-technical audience, what are some of those blind spots that you saw that people didn't connect to or didn't completely understand that was really affecting whether or not they could completely grasp the types of interactions they were having with products? All of it is almost the answer. You know what I mean? Like, like, I guess what I would say to that is I think that for a huge percentage of the audience, they really weren't thinking about it at all. And so there was just a lot of new material. But then even for the audience that was maybe a little bit more interested in technology, but not necessarily like hyper aware of the industry and not necessarily considering all of the justice and ethics issues involved with it. What I noticed is that a lot of people were so used to reading about technology in only like a positive light and had been fed so many stories from the tech press over the years about the benefits of technology and all the problems that it was going to solve. And as a result, I think one of the biggest gaps in people's knowledge was just looking at potential harms, specifically looking at the people that tech has not been designed for. And by that, I mean that, you know, so much emphasis in the industry has been on making products for your kind of upwardly mobile, well-paid, professional white guys. And that audience is so deeply centered in the way we talk about tech and the way that it is marketed. And that because of that, you know, really trying to take people's focus and put it onto others who are having to engage with technology and are not having all of these, you know, killer experiences like that, I think is really important. I think there's this perception, too, that a lot of people have that like, well, algorithms are based on math and math is always right and it's always fair, um, like more than people. And I think people have a really hard time accepting that like algorithms can be just as biased as people because they're written by people. Like there's this sense of trust that people put in like the math behind it that is often misplaced. Yeah, totally. I find this so so fascinating because the other industries that I've worked in are energy and healthcare, which are other industries that most people don't really know much about. It affects them in their everyday lives. But people have very strong opinions about and they feel like they know something about it and how it affects them. And it's interesting to me that they don't have that with technology, even though it's very much the same kind of ingrained way in their world. And I wonder if it's just like maybe it feels like it's newer as, as an industry. So people just don't question it so much. Or is it just it has all this positivity, like what you were saying, Sarah, around it. And so maybe people just don't 
think that it can be negative. I just find it interesting that there's not this very, especially in light of all the things that are in the news and, and that keep coming up, there's not this very strong response to, you know, what are these algorithms actually doing? Like you would expect. Well, that and I think that that's starting to change, but I don't think that's quite hit as mainstream of, of an audience as we might think because we're close enough to it that like, I, I can't go a day without hearing about, you know, bias and algorithms, but I don't think that's true for a lot of people. But I do think it's starting to change a little bit. And I think part of it is the newness of tech, even though it's not as if uh, like connected technologies are brand new anymore. I do think that there's been just this like really fast change in people's lives. And I don't know that we've really caught up to what those impacts have been uh, just in the past 10 years, let's say, around the way that we use technology and all of the places that it's being embedded. So the shift of technology as being a thing that you use for specific tasks to sort of like technology is embedded in everything. Every industry is being changed by technology. Every product is being changed by technology. And so I think that that's part of it is that when you start talking about technology, you start, it's like, what are you even talking about anymore? If you're, cause you suddenly you're talking about everything. And so that immensity of it can also make it feel overwhelming and make it easy to kind of like not think about. But when it comes to things like algorithms and bias, the, the other piece is that, you know, I think most people shut down a little bit when they hear a word like algorithm because it feels complicated. It feels you know, mathy, right? It is, it's literally math. And that is very alienating for a lot of people. And the reality, of course, is that, you know, algorithms are just sets of steps. They're very simple. The algorithms that are running complex web applications may be complex, but the concept of an algorithm isn't. It's, it's just a set of steps that you go through to decide something. And what I think is important for people to know about an algorithm when it comes to like any algorithm that is making decisions, it's using people's information to make decisions. It's not just that it can be just as biased as a human. In fact, it can actually be more biased or better at being biased because what an algorithm does really, really well is process large amounts of information using the steps and patterns that it has been taught. And so it will do a better job implementing bias than a human will do because it will like so consistently perform bias and it will actually optimize over time to get even better at doing the bias. So like if what you have going in is biased, it will exacerbate that bias right? It's all about what kinds of results you're trying to get. And if we don't really think about what we're training the algorithm to do, then we don't necessarily know what it's going to get good at. We just know it's going to get good at whatever we told it to do. So like if you take a bunch of historical data and feed that to an algorithm to tell it to predict the future. So by that, I mean, we're going to feed it a bunch of historical data about, let's say, people's financial information and credit information. And then using that data, it's going to build a model to predict whether or not you or I should be approved for a loan. You have to question, okay, well, what data was it fed? And what's the source of that data? And what are the biases that might exist in that data? Or what's the historical context that data was collected in? Um, you know, there's a, there's a woman, Safia Noble, who wrote a book recently called Algorithms of Oppression. And she has this line, and I can't remember it exactly, but she says something like, for example, if you're designing an algorithm to do anything related to like real estate that's location-based and you don't know about the history of redlining in the United States where people were systematically denied mortgages based off of 
the area where they lived, but those areas were conveniently where black people lived. Like if you don't know that history, then you actually have no business designing that algorithm. Um, and I think that that kind of thing is really important because that's the kind of stuff that is not getting talked about nearly enough on engineering teams where decisions are being made that are so tightly bound up in history and culture without people acknowledging they're bound up in history and culture. They think of them as being technical decisions. People imagine that the data is pure in some way, like you just get all this data and there it is. And then you just run the algorithm on it and boom, you're done. Yeah, exactly. And and of course, the reality is no data is pure, right? Like your data comes from somewhere and you have to be really clear about what that means. You know, I looked at some systems that were using things like um, a corpus of words pulled from millions of Google News articles. And that was considered to be a neutral set of words to use in in a system for natural language processing. But Google News articles are not neutral. They're collected from whoever Google has identified as being news sources. Some of those are going to have their own biases, their words written by people. Like it is not, there is no neutral way to collect things like that because all of those things have authorship. And with authorship comes people's own perspectives leaking in. And to assume that like, well, if you just have enough data, like if I just have enough biased data, it'll suddenly become unbiased data, I think is a fallacy. I just, the more we talk about this, the more I feel like the problem is that like human beings are at least capable of caring about each other and like caring about each other's feelings and caring about each other's history. Um, whether or not every individual human is doing that, I guess it's a different story, but like we do have that capacity, but like an algorithm doesn't have the capacity to like care about the people's data that it's going through. When you say that, it reminds me of when I was an undergrad, my major was psychology. So we had to take a lot of neuroscience. And one of the things that we talked about was how our brain is actually made to forget things, certain things like traumatic things and, and other things that you keep reconstructing your memory every time you retrieve it. And the reason, one of the reasons why they think your brain does that is because it's adaptive for your ability to be able to like live with other people and, and kind of progress in your life. That if you could remember in exact detail, every horrible thing that happened to you, you wouldn't ever do anything else. And that's not really a good way to live your life. And it sounds like we're building machines that are kind of doing that thing that is actually maladaptive for our own lives without realizing that we're doing that. That's fascinating. I also think that one of the things that we end up doing is we intend to outsource the decision-making to a machine so that we can make like more consistent or better decisions or so that we can do things at scale. But a lot of times I think what we end up actually outsourcing is sort of like responsibility because we get back to that answer. And I think we talked about this a little bit before of like, Oh no, 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 no. But a human didn't do that racist thing. The algorithm did it. And it's like, it's a way to say like, well, it can't actually be biased because the machine did it. And so it sort of like alienates those of us who work in tech from the responsibility for the things that we create. And I think that that's a really big problem that because I think we haven't really had enough responsibility for the things we create already in general, in, in all aspects and further alienating ourselves from that by kind of like blaming it on machine learning is uh, not going to solve that problem. 
Do you think people are outsourcing the responsibility like consciously and purposefully or do you think they're doing it kind of subconsciously? I mean, I think most people don't actively want to harm others. <laughs> I think that's that's definitely true. But I think that it is very convenient not to think about it and it's very comfortable not to think about it. And so I think it is subconscious, but I also think like I see people frequently do a lot of work to maintain a veneer of not knowing, like actively not wanting to think about it because it sort of challenges their their perception of themselves as a good person, right? It's like, no, 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 but I'm a good person. I wouldn't perpetuate something like that. And so because they have like so much belief in their own identity as a good person, that when they're confronted with information that might challenge that, they just don't process it. And I think that's one of the biggest things that prevents us from doing better. I hear it all the time, actually, from people who work at some of these big tech companies where, you know, I've, I've heard it a lot of times from people from Facebook, where it's like, oh, but we care so much about people. Look at these things that I'm doing in my day-to-day design practice. It's like, we just launched this feature that lets you, you know, like, mark yourself safe during a disaster, for example, right? And so when those kinds of features launch, people kind of go, look, look, we're doing good stuff. And you say, but wait a second, let's look at the macro picture. And there's like a a wall that goes up that's almost like, I can't think about that because look at all the good things I'm doing. Anyway, I think that there's like some some cognitive dissonance that happens when when you have to confront some of the implications of our work. And that's a big barrier for people because nobody wants to think that they contributed to something that was harmful. I feel like the way that you described machine learning in the book, like it reminded me of if you have like a small child that like says something embarrassing or offensive and you're like, I didn't really teach them that, but I also didn't really teach them not to say that. And it's like an embarrassing situation. Because I guess in a way, like, you are teaching your your algorithms to learn stuff in a, in the same way that you might try to teach, like, a child or another person to, like, take in information and learn stuff. And there's there's a sense of responsibility on the, the, the person who's doing the teaching in that case. I would – would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a bunch of research happening right now at the MIT Media Lab. There's a researcher there, Joy Buolamini, I believe is how her name is said. And one of the things that she talks about is the way that so much of this kind of work is happening amongst teams that are not very diverse and then getting sort of QA'd by what she calls the like the guy down the hall test, where it's like, we showed it to some people down the hall and they thought it was good. And as a result, it kind of goes out the door without a lot of vetting. And so specifically in her research, she's looking at things like image recognition. And one of the things she found was that like image recognition does a much worse job if you are a woman than if you're a man. And if you're a person of color than if you're not. And particularly if you're a woman with dark skin, the image recognition failure rates are much, much, much higher. And what that is really showing is basically that the people who are making these products that are sending them out to market with information about sort of like how good they are and like how, how precise they are, how accurate they are. And they have all of these percentages, et cetera. They're not thinking about who the product fails for And whether the failure rates are the same for different types of groups, they're not necessarily even testing them on enough people in the first place to know what the failure rates would be for society at large because they're testing it on the people down the hall. And so I think that there's there's a tremendous amount of responsibility that goes into 
who is included when we're making these decisions and the kinds of questions that we are asking when we're building things and, you know, making sure that, you know, we, we ask questions about the data that we are using, that we ask questions about the people who are in the room making the decisions, that we ask questions about the potential for harm of whatever it is that we're building at every single step of the way. And that's just not been happening nearly enough. And the places where people are trying to make that happen, a lot of times it's happening in a really ad hoc way. So individual teams maybe will try, but like in terms of organization-wide processes, priorities, values, it's just not there. Yeah, I would sort of doubt that, and I haven't taken any data science classes, but I would sort of doubt that there are standard modules on how to unbias your data or how to make sure your data is complete enough so that you can avoid biases and how to check for that at the end. You know, I I definitely have talked to folks who are involved with particularly like computer science education and there, there's a lot of movement now to start talking about more ethics training within that type of education. But I would actually argue that it's, that that's only a piece of it, that there's all these other pieces that are like, well, who gets to decide what fair means, right? Like how do you define a fair outcome? That is a tough question And I'm not sure that even if you had to take a whole bunch of ethics training in your coursework in like an undergraduate computer science degree program, I'm not sure that that really gives you the ability to make that decision about things that might have a lot of social cultural impact. I think that that we're not necessarily being honest about like sort of the the impact that our work can have and the the way that it like like if you're going to do something that could have a profound effect on society then somebody needs to think really clearly about what your intentions are and I'm not sure that that should be left up to an engineer or an engineering team I think that that you probably need some people in there with some other viewpoints and other types of expertise so I think that's a big piece of it too so often these things are talked about as as questions of technology and as questions of data science, but fundamentally before they are questions about the data or how we're going to work through the problem at a programmatic level, they are questions of values and they are questions of like what is right and what is good and what is desired. And those are big and messy questions that can't be reduced down to like simple programmatic ones. Certainly. And I think also from the perspective of, of an individual developer, it's easy to sort of end up in a situation where you're suddenly programming on that um, compass system that, that determines recidivism rates and sentencing guidelines for people um, undergoing trials that you talk about in the book. Like you can end up on that team and before you realize it, you're suddenly now responsible for the moral outcomes that are that are the result of your algorithms, but probably haven't had done any thinking before that about what you would do in that situation. So you don't really be prepared for evaluating what, what you're going to do now that you realize that this is what you're doing. Reminds me and of you have talk. to also even realize it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You have to realize it. Uh, it reminds me of a talk by Caleb Thompson called Finding Responsibility, where he talks about how he was on a team that was doing image recognition on video and then eventually realized that what he was doing was something to analyze drone footage to figure out where to place the bombs. Uh, and then, like, 
suddenly like, oh, my God, this is what I'm actually doing here. You know, I, I now have to decide whether I'm going to keep doing this or I'm going to stop doing this. Um, but some people are so removed from the end result of what they're building that they may not have that realization. And I think that that's been sort of a privilege in technology to be like to let ourselves be so removed from the impact of what we're building and still reap all of these rewards of being like highly prized and valued people in our companies and uh, sought after and kind of like taking on increasing power in society. Like, I guess I would say I think that we have a responsibility to look a lot more closely at that. And, and I think that and I think we should be asking questions about what we're making and why we're making it and why we're so caught up in sustaining an industry that maybe doesn't align with what we think we stand for. This is fascinating. It reminds me of this show that I've been watching where it's a group of lawyers and at some point they end up taking on as a partner, this team who creates algorithms to determine whether or not they should actually pursue a case in the watching the interaction between the lawyers and this algorithm team, it feels very much like what you're describing is that the current landscape around what people think about algorithms and then them in actual real practice, because, you know, they'll be discussing a case and kind of leaning towards, okay, we should probably do this because what happened is wrong and we can do something about it. And then this group will be across the table saying, no, 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 according to our algorithm, this is not going to get you paid. So you shouldn't do this. And there's this big conflict between what they feel is morally right versus, you know, they're also a business. So then why should they take this? It should only be about profit and loss and how you square that. And in the past, it's like we decided as people that we would weigh each and one, one of those instances and come up with what we believed we could kind of sleep at night with. But in this world where we're basing everything on an algorithm, we may actually be creating something we don't really want, but it's then it's hard to negate it because technically it's so true that we don't know what to say. Well, I think one of the things that happens is that in tech in general and specifically with things like algorithms and machine learning is that we we obscure the impacts and so we make it easy to not see the downsides. And so, I mean, like we can talk about the like moral compromise aspect of it, right? Like, well, you know, we need to have a business, so we're going to flex a little bit here and there, but, you know, we're not going to do these things. That's over the line. But the problem is that 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 assumes that you actually know what the trade-offs are. And I think part of what is happening is that we are making trade-offs we don't realize we are making. And we're we're sort of like actively not thinking about them. And I think that we've been doing that for a long time. I mean, that's how you get, you know, a company like Facebook, right? And and you look at something like Facebook and it's like, that is a company that has made a tremendous amount of money off of effectively harvesting people's data so they can target advertising to you, right? Like they made like $40 billion or something off of this last year. And that has been the only driver. And as they've gone public, they have shareholders and shareholders are expecting returns. And in fact, like they're beholden to shareholders to try to maximize those returns. And so at at every single point along the way, the goal of increasing that value is the only thing you can really see. And everything else is far, 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 far secondary, far behind. And sort of, like I said, obscured, not talked about, sort of like made more invisible. And so, you know, how can you have a good conversation about trade-offs and about what we, you know, what we can sleep at night with if we're not being honest about the impact we're having? 
So one of the uh, interesting sort of things you called out at, I think, several points around the book is the paternalism or parochialism that technology companies tend to approach their customers with. Sort of, uh, we've designed this algorithm. It's going to be perfect for you. Here you go. You don't really have a choice about whether you use it or not. And then the customers are sort of there to deal with the fallout or the, the parts of their lives that don't fit with what the algorithmic expectations were. And I think that brings us back to that we're at the beginning talking about the culture of the tech industry that assumed superiority, that assumed like knowledge of what's best for the customers uh, sort of built into the way everything operates. I mean, totally. It's definitely a culture where so many people have been taught for a long time that they're, you know, they're the best and the brightest. It's a meritocracy. And if they're successful in tech, it's because they deserve it and they just must be smarter and worked harder. And when you have that kind of mentality within the industry, then you really do get a bunch of people in a room who think they know what's best for other humans whose lives they don't lead. Um, and I think they don't usually articulate it that's that way, but that is that is fundamentally what we oftentimes can end up believing. And I think that that's one of the reasons so many discussions, and I hear this a lot on the design side, so many discussions about like empathy fall really flat because people equate that to making people feel good. And in reality, if we we're actually going to be empathetic to users, what we would really be doing is we'd really be able to say, we don't know best. Like we don't know what people need or we don't know about the complexity of their identity. And we don't know what categories they should be in. Um, like we need to give people opportunities to define themselves and give people opportunities to decide how they want to use our product and like engage with technology on their own terms. And that is such a big mental shift to how we think about the audiences that we design things for and how we think about our role. And it really requires this level of humility that is not nearly strong enough or present enough in tech culture right now. It's interesting to me that in a lot of other industries, you get this, the customer is always right attitude. And like, I think you're totally right. I think in tech, you don't get that at all. I think a lot of people in tech have this weirdly antagonistic view of their own users. It's like, well, my users are stupid and they don't know what they need. I wonder why that is. Absolutely. I mean, again, it, I really do think it comes back to a lot of myths in our industry around these kind of like genius lone wolves designing stuff alone in a basement somewhere that's going to change the world. And so people, you know, people tend to think that like that that's how good software is made is by some lone genius making decisions that affect others. And it doesn't mean that like individuals don't have great ideas sometimes or that that hasn't necessarily like caused some great changes in the world. But the idea that that is what we should be striving for and that that is going to somehow serve this like incredibly diverse and nuanced universe of people that are using tech like it's laughable when you actually break it down but that is often how we behave and that's how we hire i mean if you look at things like job listings in in tech companies they're so often optimized for people who think of themselves as sort of rock star hacker guru, whatever terrible language you want to use. Um, but like if you, if you ingrain that mentality into people, it has the result of also ingraining the sense of paternalism. Right. Do you think that we could encourage more diverse teams and such 
based on the language that we use in things like job postings and descriptions of teams and companies? I mean, I, th- I think that definitely does change um, what you get in actual job applicants because I've seen it happen. I know that there are folks in their organizations. I know some who have like dramatically overhauled the way that they write about their positions and also the way that they talk about their culture. And it has dramatically changed who applies. Uh, I remember a couple years ago now, Aaron Kassane asked on Twitter about language that people find welcoming and helpful when they're looking at job advertisements and then also what they find alienating. And she collected this huge set of things. And somebody I know actually went through and like took all of that information and then overhauled how they wrote their job listings and found that they ended up getting like way more women candidates in technical positions, way more people of color applying. And then they also kind of took a look at how that was resulting in like hiring decisions. So like, it's one thing to say who applies changes, but it's another thing to look at like, who do we actually hire? And you can see that you can see the results. I mean, you can see the way that teams actually change over time. If you look at who comes up in that, in that initial hiring process. And that's not everything like changing who we hire is only a piece of it. You also have to like create an environment where you value people's ideas and don't make them want to leave. But that's a huge piece of it. You know, I talk to people a lot who are like, well, I just don't, you know, like I can't get any women to apply. And it's like, well, okay, maybe it's not them. Maybe it's you. Right. Like, have you looked at yourself and have you thought about what we what we might be doing that is preventing that from happening? And a lot of times they haven't. They're just like, we just don't get it. We don't know why. And it's like, well, have you looked at the networks that you have? Have you looked at the way you're writing? Have you looked at all these other factors that could be affecting whether somebody perceives this as being like a safe or a good place for them? And if you're not doing that work, then why would I share this out with like to my network? Or why would I why would I try to get other people to apply for this? Uh-huh. I really enjoyed this. This was a, another great conversation about some of the things that it seems like only a few people really pay attention to. But one of the things that it makes me think about is how we can actually get people to start making changes based off of what we actually know. Because it feels like we are learning a lot about what's actually happening and how it affects people and what the better outcome is. Uh, but it still seems to be hard to to get that message out where it doesn't sound like you know be nice to everybody and let's hold hands and actually more like this is the best way for everybody to grow their business to have better products to have better impact yeah one of the uh, things that that i took away from the book in particular was again it was a concrete thing that that i, I can start doing to keep a better eye on these sorts of things was the, the use of stress cases uh, along with personas where you're thinking about not only who's the ideal user, but also what are the qualities of other users and that might be affected by the way this is presented so that you can highlight, oh, well, if someone's had a recent death, let's not show them their most popular photo that maybe uh, was from their funeral uh, or something like that. Uh, that. That's one of the vivid examples in the book. Um, and so thinking about how to build that, those stress cases into the way that I'm thinking about features that are getting built is, I think, going to be very useful. For me, I think my really important takeaway was the importance of having cultures in technology and in the workplace that are not homogenized. Because in a 
having like a culture that's very homogenized is so harmful when nobody has any new ideas or new perspectives. And when we're talking about this kind of stuff, I think the perspectives are really important because it makes sense that a certain demographic of people wouldn't be thinking about something in a certain way. And so if you have um, more people that have more diverse backgrounds, you're going to get people that are going to kind of ping on these things that could be problems. Um, and I think that that is, like Astrid was saying, a way, like not just we're, you know, including people and not being harmful to them, which obviously is important in its own right. But I also think that like it's, I do think that it's it's good for business. Like you're going to open up your your products to more people. One of the examples in the book that was um that really stuck out to me was talking about like period tracking apps and it went into a lot about like um how they're pointed towards like preventing pregnancy or like trying to get pregnant and like leaving out women that aren't thinking about that kind of thing like queer women, but also like period tracking apps that are really pointedly like, hey, ladies are like very exclusive, I guess, of people like me who like are assigned female at birth and have periods but don't identify as women. So like if you change your app to be inclusive to people like trans men, not only are you making those people feel better, but like now there's a whole new demographic that might use want to use your product. And so I think that um, that all goes really hand in hand with just having more perspectives in your team and having a culture that really values that as a priority. Something this conversation has really reminded me of, I think, is that we don't get better at anything if we don't talk about it and we don't practice it. And that so many of these conversations, even inside the tech industry, like they're just not happening often enough. Like we're not, we're not investing enough of our day-to-day time and thinking about what's the worst that could happen or how could this go wrong or who could this hurt or who does this leave out? And that there's so much power in just normalizing that kind of conversation and helping people to get good at having those conversations. Because if we're all like awkward and weird when we talk about difficult things, we're not going to get anywhere. But we have to talk about them, you know, we have to start somewhere. So starting to have more of this conversation and having it kind of out in the world, I think is something that's really valuable and, and something that, you know, even just being on this podcast, I think helps us to do. I think it was a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you all so much for having me. And thank you for writing the book. I think it's a great way to start having these conversations, having such a thorough discussion of the topics. Yeah. Thank you. And I, I think that there is starting to be a lot more books coming out that are going deep into specific niches and that are getting into some other areas. And I'm just excited to see, Uh, a large collection of tech criticism kind of hit the market because I think we have a lot to learn. I also have to say that if any of our listeners are interested in having um, more really interesting and nuanced conversations like this, um, we do have a greater than code Slack community, um, which is really great. And we chat a lot about these kind of things all the time. And if you want to get invited to our Slack community, go to patreon.com slash greater than code. And even if you pledge um, just a dollar to our Patreon, we are a user-supported podcast, then you can um, come participate in our community conversations and get more Greater Than Code every day.